Jedediah's parents own a production company in Holland, Michigan, and they were the ones that were actually responsible for that video that churches across the country are, are using uh, probably this morning, so that's kind of cool. Brittany, did you work on that video at all? And Brittany worked on that. She was part of that, so that's kind of neat. Um, yeah. So it seemed uh, appropriate um, just by coincidence of the Holy Spirit that we would be talking about end times and uh, kicking it off on uh, the Sunday that we're praying for the persecuted church when we kind of try and pull out of just a local level, a very us-focused moment, and think a little bit more globally of what is God doing around the world, what's happening around the world. Um, thinking back to when I was 24, 25 years old and was working in the area of social work and I was praying about um, what God was calling me to do, uh, what he wanted me to step in. And there was a definitive moment where I felt called back into full-time ministry. And then I had to pray about, was that working for a parachurch organization? Was that uh, a church? Was that a, a pastor? Was that a, a teacher? Those kind of things. And, and so um, also had to, when I decided it was, he was calling me to the pastorate, um, what denomination would I embrace? So our family was attending an RCA church, Reformed Church of America, which is what this church is presently. And so I connected with some folks uh, from the RCA and just said, so what does it take to become a pastor of, of what they call word and sacrament? So I assumed that there'd be a, a handful of classes um, that I had to learn about the history of the denomination and, and those kind of things. And he said, well, well first, you, you do need a master's of divinity. And that's, I still remember the number, 144 credits. That includes things like Greek and Hebrew, the languages, and systematic theology, and, and uh, history of the church, all those. I said, you've got to be kidding me. That's going to take me four years. Yeah. And they're like, also, there's a 13 verbal tests that you have to take in front of pastors and elders. You've got to be kidding me. Verbal tests in front of pastors and elders? I said, yeah, yeah, there's also this credo that you have to put together. It's like a thesis statement that, that talks your perspective and understanding of primary areas of doctrine, soteriology, right? the, the study of salvation, Christology, the study of Christ. You, you have to be able to write all those. I said, you've got to be kidding me. That's going to take forever. And by the way, that's part of what we install uh, Jedediah. It's an it's a, um, acknowledgement of a lot of work that he's put in in preparation for not just his own growth and development, but how he can minister and care for the congregation that he's called to lead and be a part of that leadership. So I said, okay, God, if that's what you're calling me to, we'll do the grand adventure. All three of those things were very intimidating. The Masters of Divinity was intimidating. The, the verbal exams were very intimidating. The, the credo, especially because I knew there was this, still remember this, this author of Reformed Theology, I.J. Hesling, he was the one that was going to grade my credo. I was like, oh. So I, I worked in all that, and I put the work in, and got the result. I passed. I just want you all to know that. <laughs> all right. And, uh, and um, I was really, I.J. Uh, I. Hessling, he liked how I did theology. I decided to do it my own way. I know that comes a shock to many of you, but just, just building in story and so forth. But he gave me an A minus. I was like an A minus. So I put a lot of work. And he said, yeah, I'm giving you an, uh, a minus. He wrote down for, for two reasons. One was grammar and punctuation. And I didn't have Marilyn Henney editing my credo as I do now. So I really missed Marilyn in that moment. 
He said, but the other reason I'm giving you a, a minus is one area of doctrine and theology, and that is eschatology. You see, I didn't say this, but in so many words, I did. I was communicating that I am a pan-millennialist. Anyone know what that is? That, that in the end, it all pans out, right? And Jesus wins, and we're good to go. I, I felt really good about that section. And I.J. Hessling said, that is not good enough. He said, these are core areas of doctrine that should affect how you live your life from a day-to-day basis, that these core areas of doctrine, including eschatology and the study of, uh, of last things, end times, it should affect how you preach and teach. It should affect how you shepherd. It should affect your day-to-day, whether you're a pastor or not, just as a Christian, it should affect your relationships, your activities, your hobbies, how you live on a daily basis. These areas of doctrine, whether soteriology, the study of theology, ecclesiology, your doctrine of the church, or eschatology, the study of end times, you need to be able to shepherd whatever church you lead better. Yeah, so I deserve the minus, all right? I deserve the minus. Now, that has led me to, to be, try at different times in, in ministry to, to preach in those different areas of theology, whether you realize it or not. But from time to time, I do try and preach on end times things because it's important it should affect how we live. We can get sidetracked very easily. In fact, sometimes I have great hesitancy of preaching in some of these because because we can get sidetracked real easily, right? In part because the book of Revelation is at the the center of end times, and that's just a wacky book, right? I I love it. It's just, right? So I felt like the Lord gave me an idea for this series, right? Felt like it was from the Lord. That what we would do is that we would preach, I would preach and invite you in to walk through what I believe to be the clearest articulation of end times within the Bible. That we would walk through the Apostle Paul's teaching on end times and allow him to lay a foundation for us. And so I have a couple of goals in this series that's coming. I do want to invite you all to dig deeper with me, to to wrestle through, and, and I am going to very humbly share the primary elements of the second coming and the return, and the end of all things. And I'm going to put it on a a timeline for us. I'm not making predictions about a time or anything like that, but I want you all to be able to, if you're out at Starbucks, right, or, or something, to be able to take a napkin, and whether you're sharing with one of your your children, you're talking with a friend or a coworker or whatever that is, that you would be able, whether they are Christian or non-Christian, you would be able to articulate a belief and a conviction about how the, the end of all things happen. That you'd be able to talk about those things. Okay, I want us to be able to do that. You can disagree with me or different aspects of that. There's a lot of disagreement. So I would just say don't be disagreeable. All right? You can disagree, but don't be disagreeable. And the second, perhaps more important goal that I have for this series is that as we learn about these primary aspects of end times that it would affect our day-to-day living. 
it would affect how we see the world, how we see relationships, how we interact with people, even our hobbies, our activities. So those are lofty goals, but I believe that the Lord wants us to focus at this time on these things. So would you pray with me? So Lord Jesus, we say help. This is a challenging area and subject. But Lord, would you teach us the things that you want us to know? Would you help us not to just be learners of your word and the end of all things? Would you help us to live today for what you will show us about tomorrow? In your precious name, we pray. Amen. Would you turn with me to Thessalonians? First Thessalonians, we're going to be in chapter 4. And as you find that, um, uh, you can read in Acts 17, kind of an interesting story, where Paul and Silas and his companions, they, they go to Thessalonica. And as was their custom, they start reasoning from the scriptures in the synagogues, we're told, and probably the marketplace. And they have the beginnings of a fruitful ministry that they lead a number of folks to Christ, and they start a church. So some effective ministry that's happening in Thessalonica. However, there were some bad actors in Thessalonica, and they start to stir up controversy, and they create a riot. And Paul and Silas have to flee because of the riot. And probably the church there was facing persecution. So um, Paul sends Timothy back to Thessalonica. He connects with the church, brings Paul back a report. It's a good report. If you read the first part of Thessalonians, the first several chapters, he's really praising them that even in the midst of persecution, they're doing well. They're clinging to the Lord. However, Timothy wrote, writes back and he shares, they do have some questions. And that's probably what Paul is talking about when he begins, especially in chapter 4 of ver and verse 13. So I'll start reading there. He says, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed. I like how NIV used to translate that as ignorant. We don't want you to be ignorant about those who sleep in death, he's referring to those who have died. So that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. It's a, a common phrase that Paul uses, in him or in Christ. He's talking about those in the kingdom, those who are Christians who have died prior to the second coming. According to the Lord's word, we don't know if that was, may have been Jesus' teaching on earth. It might have been a direct revelation from Jesus to Paul. But he says, according to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, he who are, uh, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Can you imagine it? Try and get that in your mind's eye. Jesus coming back with the threefold command and the voice of the archangel and trumpet blasts. 
And we are caught up in the sky with him. After that, we who are still alive are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. That's an amazing piece of scripture, isn't it? It's a picture of the future of what we potentially will experience in some way, shape, or form, whether we've gone on to be with the Lord or whether we are left here um, on earth at his return. So let's unpack. There's, there's some things that's somewhat confusing about this little passage of scripture. I wanted us to, to take our time. And then one is what he's talking about, people have called the rapture. Have you heard that? That's in popular. Yeah, rapture. And so actually the, the, the word rapture is not in scripture but it's in this verse 17, caught up together, like a, a pulling, right? When, um, when Paul says he was caught up in Revelation, that, that was the, the caught up, the rapture. That's actually a, where we get the word rapture is it's a Latin for rapio, rapio. So we're, we're caught up, the Lord returns, and we're caught up. That's the rapture. All right, now, a little bit of confusion in the text is this. It says, if you look at the end of verse 14, or just look at verse 14, for we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Those who have died, that were in Christ, that were Christian, he says, when Jesus returns again with a threefold announcement, that they will be with him. That's cool. But if you look at verse, um, uh, if you look at verse 16, it says, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. He's talking about those same loved ones that have gone before us. They are coming with Christ, and yet, what did we just read? They rise. So which is it, Paul? Do they come with Jesus, or do they rise? I, I think the, the key in understanding, did someone say yes? Yeah, you're a long time. Thank you, Jerry. And the answer is Yes. All right, um, so the key to understanding this is the idea of an intermediate state. What scripture teaches is that when Christians die, think of my parents, for example, when they died, Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. Amen. Great promise. Great promise. So that when we pass away, we are lifted up. Our, our soul, our essence, who we are, in, in spiritual form, go into the presence of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. And yet the tent, this physical body, is left here on earth, whether we're cremated and scattered, whether we're put into the ground. So there is a dynamic. Now, this is an important promise to end times, is that we are promised just as Christ is resurrected, did you know you and I are resurrected? You and I receive physical resurrection bodies. That's what Paul is talking about, is that those who have died, they're with Christ, in Christ's presence right now, but it's an intermediate state. They are not in the state that they will be for eternity. 
right? When they come to uh, and accompany Jesus, then their physical bodies that they left when they died, it is in a, a, and, and Paul says, in a twinkle of an eye, they are changed and transformed and they are given resurrection bodies to rule and reign with Christ on the renewed earth. It's a little controversial. People have different perspectives. We're not going to get into those details. Really, the controversial part of the rapture is where people go from there. Do we go back with Jesus into heaven? Or do we come to the earth and rule and reign with him? And is that in the millennial thousand-year reign? Or is that the renewed earth? I will talk about that. A little bit more in the weeks to come. I happen to believe that we are caught up with Christ and we come with him and rule and reign for a thousand years, okay? Again, you can disagree with me. Don't be disagreeable. We'll talk about this when it comes, okay? All right, but the main idea is, is that those who have gone before us, my parents, they will come with Christ Jesus, and when they come, they will be transformed and be given resurrection bodies, incorruptible bodies, new and improved bodies, which my parents are going to be really glad about, right? Okay? They come and return. And then what happens? What does Paul say? After those we've loved come, return with him, then what happens? We, we us, that, that you and I are caught up and we rise with Christ. And then guess what? We, in a twinkle of an eye, if we're still alive, we are transformed. We are given new and improved resurrection bodies. And we all said, Amen. Right? Incorruptible bodies. And we, again, I believe this, we rule and reign with Christ in the thousand years. Now, this is what Paul is saying. Perhaps he had to leave their church before he could explain all of this. And in essence, he's saying, this is really encouraging. This is awesome that Jesus has resolved the ancient question of what happens. Is there more to life than just this? That we as Christians don't believe it's mystery or in doubt that this can be a great source of comfort, encouragement, and strength for us, and very motivational for how we live today. So I thought of three ways that we can respond to this. If, if we get that picture, this idea of the return of Christ, uh, of the rapture, of us being transformed, and the ruling and reigning, how does that apply today to us? Well, the first application really was what Paul was meaning to do with the Christians, the first readers of this. He was saying, I do not want you to grieve like the rest of humankind without hope. He's saying, of course, we grieve when we lose loved ones. See, they were wrestling with, they thought that Jesus was coming, and yet there were Christians in their midst that passed away, maybe because of persecution, and they're saying, what happens? Are they missing the second coming of Christ? Are they out? And Paul is saying, absolutely not. They are not out. In fact, they will come with, and, and be transformed before you. In fact, a, a, a position of glory. So, so, so we grieve but we grieve differently because we've been told. It's been revealed to us what 
happens. We move beyond questions or wishful thinking or simply hope. We move beyond grief as if this is the end. It is not the end. In fact, in many ways, it's just the beginning. I was reading a a pastor a number of years ago who was arguing against the reality of hell. And boy, I I would love it if that were true, if there were no hell. Wouldn't that be sweet? So I I wanted to give him the, the benefit of the doubt. I wanted to read the scriptures. I wanted to pray through and wrestle through it. But I heard him make this comment. He said this, you know, let's be honest. No one really knows what happened when you die. It's all conjecture. And I was like, yeah, all right. I got to split with you on that. No, that's not the testimony of the Christian church. That's not what we believe as Christians. We believe that there is someone, Jesus Christ, who was from heaven and from eternity, came to earth, revealed some of that reality, and now has gone back to eternity, back to heaven. So we want to pay attention to what he has said about eternity, about heaven and about hell, we want to place our hopes not on a mere human teacher, but on his words. If I'm going to take a vacation to Europe, who do I want to talk to about what are the sightseeing things I want to do? Someone from Texas? No! No! Someone who's never been to Europe? Of course not. I would love to find someone who was born and raised there that can tell, oh, don't miss that. And this is what it's like. And here's how you prepare and pack. It's the same thing with Jesus. He was there. He was in eternity. He knows heaven and hell. He knows all the realities of eternity. He knows what we will face. He knows how this world will wind down and be transformed. He knows how you're supposed to live today in light of eternity. I think you shouldn't listen to me. Let's listen to him. Yes? Yes, we listen and say, okay, I believe in you. Listen to some of the promises that he has said to you and I. John 11, 25, 26, Jesus says to Martha, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? I'm going to go with a yes. Right? I'm going to believe Jesus. He's saying he is the source of eternal life. He is the way of resurrection. That we don't have to employ guesswork. That we don't, it's not just conjecture. We can be and learn from and hear the man of heaven. Listen to the promise of peace. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. As we've talked about and prayed about, especially the persecuted church. But take heart I have overcome the world. Doesn't matter what you face. Today you are all in, invited to uh, Oral Allen's uh, memorial service, celebration of life. She's, uh, she was one of my favorite people on the earth. And I'm grieving that she's gone. But we get to proclaim that it's not the end for Oral. That we believe that Because she is absent from the body, she is in the presence of Jesus Christ, and she would not come back if she was given the opportunity. We don't have to go, boy, you know, 
I'm preparing for the message at the service today, and I, I'm going to say I really hope that, that Oral's in a better place. That's no good, right? That's not how Jesus wants me to preach it, right? So, of course, we grieve, but we know God has revealed that this is not the end, that this is not all that there is, that our temporary struggles and difficulties, they're preparing us for the experience, the, the beautiful experience. Is the main content and intent of Paul of sharing this but also there's some other applications and response. I think another one that I want to invite us to, especially for the series, is that we would seek understanding regarding the end. I don't think that God is calling us to be pan-millennialists. I think he's inviting us that he's revealed. How many times did Jesus talk about the second coming? <laughs> a lot. I don't know exactly how many that is, but a lot. How many times did Paul talk about end times? A lot. We're going to look at main categories. A lot that he is wanting us to learn and grow. I would say this word. I'm inviting you to a curiosity, a healthy curiosity. Would you, would you bring a curiosity of how that looks like? It might get a little confusing. I'll do my best to, to try and articulate what I believe will happen. But would you bring that healthy curiosity because he has revealed so much to us. And I want to say this, I believe that end times, part of the reason why I thought he wanted me to preach this is that it's, it's an antidote to, to some unhealthy lies in our culture that we have a tendency to believe or begin to live in or to even teach our kids. And it helps us not to do that. Thinking of kind of the, the soils of the heart that there's a number of lies and I think one, a weapon of the enemy is that it, for those of us who are looking at the world scene and wrestling with terrorism and North Korea and China and all of these things, there is a, an easy way that we are immobilized because of fear. And I would say end times, good end times preaching, a, a healthy curiosity would be able to see these worlds of events and go, you know, God is not surprised by that decision that China just made. That, that God is over all things. And, and I can trust my Father in heaven. There, there's a second almost opposite lie of the culture. Different especially for us in the West that are removed from some of the persecutions that are there, that there's a tendency we can fall into boredom. Do you know that is considered the plague of Western culture right now? Is that we're bored. You look at all the hours we give to just random, insignificant Things of inconsequence. Yeah? I, I don't want to be throwing stones from glass houses. I participate in some of those things like fantasy football, right? <laughs> that has absolutely no bearing on anything whatsoever. But I have to limit my focus on that, right? Yeah, I have to pull back on that. The, again, I, I don't want you to feel that I'm hypocritical. I, I, I wrestle with some of these things. Binge watching a show and blowing a whole weekend. Right? You, you see, I think, did you know that scientists are finding that boredom is deadly and can kill you? So the old adage, I am bored to death, be careful when you say that. <laughs> It's as, it's as potent as stress. 
But see what the antidote to this is, not that we, we, we get rid of all of those things, but we don't allow those things to become meaning and significant in our life. Christ is calling us to connect our lives with his purposes. That's the other third soil I was thinking of to, to the heart. And sometimes we communicate to this our, our, our children that it's all about you. That we're self-centered. When we think about what we're doing, we just think about what do I want to do? What profession do I want to have? What do I... Now, don't get me wrong. I want my kids to be happy, but that's not enough. I, I want my kids, I want my kids to be productive, healthy individuals that, that serve the community. Yeah? That's not enough. That's not enough. Jesus wants us intimately connected with him and our lives leveraging our time, our energy, our focus to his eternal purposes. He is on the move today. And he invites us to join him in whatever gifts, in whatever talents, in whatever treasure, in whatever time he calls it. He wants us to leverage our lives for his good purposes. Friends, if we study the end times and you go, huh, boy, I could be a part of this work. Boy, that's a, a worthy study. Yes? I also love the fallback Sundays because that gives me another hour to preach to you. Ah. <laughs> oh. Isn't that how it works? Yeah. <laughs> I heard a mixture of yes and no. Hmm. Okay. Uh, final, final point or application for us. Where are we here? Go to the next slide. Let me the slide. Ah, we will. We will uh, rise. We live to rise. I'm sorry, I skipped around a little bit of you, around on you, but we we live to rise is what I titled that that final piece in. And here's what I mean by that: is that you want to avoid two different things. That there's going to be a day that those who are in Christ are going to rise to meet him on the earth. And you don't want to be left behind. You don't want to be like, well, hey! That would be a very bad thing, wouldn't it? That would not be a good thing. Equally, you don't want this to happen. You don't want you, yourself, your person to start rising. And your loved ones are not. Right? Sorry, I ran out of time to tell you about Jesus. I had fantasy football commitments to make. You see how this should affect our daily lives. Now, now listen, I'm going to, again, we're going to un unfold this in the next couple weeks, but it, it's been shown that aggressive evangelism, like when I hear and I think about rapture, when I think about Christ coming and rising, that makes me want to run out and tackle someone to tell them about Jesus. And we're learning that aggressive evangelism not only is ineffective, but it's working against the church the door-to-door, -door, the on-the-corner. What's really happening, and I believe that, that Christ is doing, is he, he's calling his church, especially in the West, but I would say universal, this is a call to do two things. That we've seen that love transforms everything. 
the inspiration of the rapture, the inspiration of the second coming, what I wanted as it comes, I want us not to be filled with fear. I want it to, want to, uh, it to awake us up from, from our, our, our just, just not being mindful of the things of God, and I want it to stir us to love, to love our neighbors, our enemies, our friends well, that our love would be the first response to end times theology. And our second response is this, that this is a, the coming age, that a new age is dawning, and incredibly what scripture teaches, that his church gets to be a part of the powers of that coming age. That we get to pray for people and see healing and transformation as a testimony. And when we see that healing, we get, that was good, wasn't it? That was just a taste of what was coming. Yes? Yes. Believe it. To love and to pray to love and show kindness even to those persecuting love, how we prayed for the persecutors. We want them to rise with us, don't we? We want them to know the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, don't we? And to pray, to leverage the power of the coming Christ to us. I don't often do this, but I want to invite Jedediah and the worship team to come forward, but I found a song that was just so awesome that connected with the message. Um, we don't really sing it enough or at all as a congregation. Some of you might be aware of it from uh, Christian radio and so forth, but it just says so much. And I thought as part prior to going to communion, if the worship team could lead us in that song, Jedediah, do you want them to just to listen to you guys or do you want them to sing along with you? I need help. Yeah. He needs help. Well, we know that, but do we? You can stay seated. Okay. What?
who have gone before us, the Christian leaders, that when we take communion, we, we remember, we remember his death on the cross. We remember his first coming. But also we proclaim that someday he will come not as a baby in a manger. He will come as the ruling and reigning king. We take it and we proclaim. So would you come and proclaim with me? Would the elders come forward? <coughs> it was the night in which Jesus was betrayed that he had in mind death on the cross, but as we know from so much of his teaching that he knew and had on his mind that he would return, that he would come back. Took the bread after he blessed it and gave thanks. He broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after dinner, he took the cup he said, it's a new covenant. It's a new age that you can know the Father, know Jesus Christ, know the Spirit. Take of it and drink. Walk in the reality of his presence. Walk in the reality of his revelation that we know how it all ends. We know that Jesus comes 
and removes all our pain, all our brokenness. By his stripes, we are healed. If you are a follower of Christ, if you've committed your life, would you come? Would you please hold on to the elements or come from your seats? Hold on, return to your seats. Hold the elements. We'd like to take them together as a sign of unity in faith. Would you come? Doesn't seem appropriate that we would sit as we sing a song, I Will Rise. <laughs> People of God, we know we know he's coming back. We don't have to live in doubt, in insecurity. We don't have to bring guesswork. We know that there will be a day that he will return and all of our loved ones, those that have we lost, that we, we grieve today, they will be with him. And by his grace, he will lift us up. We certainly don't deserve it. It's not because of our own merit. It's not because of how we've lived to earn it. But by his grace, he will bring us into the fullness of the kingdom. Would you proclaim that with your life? Would you proclaim that with your words? Would you proclaim that by taking his body and his blood? Eat and drink. we close with that final I will rise chorus. I will rise when he calls my name. No more sorrow, no more pain. I will rise on eagle's wings before my Peace.